Welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast, bringing you juicy convos with thought leaders discussing the wild world of parenting. There are a lot of ways that we can help children have positive interactions with food that are positive for us and them. My big core value here is building a trusting relationship with our child because that will supersede. That is more important than whether your child eats a bite of broccoli or a carrot. That really doesn't matter. But if your child doesn't trust you, that matters. That clip was from our guest of the show today, Talia Eve. Now, before we dive into Talia's background, my name is Katie Berlin. I am the host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast, and with me is my hubby. I'm Jason Berlin, the hubby in question here, the co-host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast. What up, Shug? This episode was one of our most requested episodes. Talia is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, and she specifically works with parents with young children. Anywhere from brand new babies to toddlers to young kids to avoid mealtime meltdowns. Mealtime meltdowns. Which if you're a parent, even if your child is not a picky eater, you probably have experienced this where they just have a favorite food that all they want to eat is that food over and over again. Like for example... Our son is obsessed with calamari pasta. Mm -hmm. He requests it pretty much daily. Mm -hmm. And you have to really tell him like, sure, we're going to have that or else it's going to be like a meltdown even before the mealtime begins because he's so obsessed with it. And then when we do eat, we kind of have to persuade him to try other foods. And then how do you feel as a parent giving a little white lie like that to your poor little unsuspecting child? Yeah, you can have pasta tonight and then switcheroo. Here's some vegetables and something else. And then you break trust with your little boy or your little girl. And that just feels terrible because you don't want to lie to them. You know, you want to be truthful with the little one. And so Talia actually goes into that about how a lot of mealtime meltdowns and avoiding them has to do with building trust with your kids. So she has a lot of great juicy tidbits that she's going to share with you. All right, Talia Eve is a registered dietitian and nutritionist who works with parents struggling to create confidence and control during mealtimes with their children. She provides tools and mindset shifts for parents to cultivate peaceful family meals without added pressure, bribing, or feeling stressed out and defeated by children who are picky eaters. She works with parents to uncover the positive power they intrinsically hold to help their children create a healthy relationship with food. Let's welcome Talia to the show. Talia, thank you for joining us. We would love for you to introduce yourself to the Elevate the Vibe audience. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Talia. I'm a dietitian. Um, I'm actually originally from Australia, from Melbourne. So if you're hearing an accent, that's why. <laughs> um, but I've lived in the US for quite a number of years. My husband is American. Um, we were just talking before we started that he's from California. So that's where, that's where we live now. Um, so um, a little bit about me. <laughs> I'm a dietitian. I work with children, or I, I actually, to be honest, work with parents with little children um, who are having problems with feeding or picky eating, um, ge like general behavior issues with kids, um, where desserts are concerned, how to cultivate a healthy relationship with food. 
because um, parents, as we all know, can get really stuck in the, the micro aspects of what's happening. And we just think about the right now, like at this meal, they're eating a lot of this thing and they're not eating this thing. And it's very frustrating and causes a lot of stress and anxiety because parents worry that their kid's not eating enough or they're eating too much and not eating enough of a certain thing. So that's what I currently work in. Um, I'm also a nutrition instructor at a local college. Um, so I teach nutrition to students there that I, I also really enjoy. Um, and I started this business when my second baby was about five months old. Um, I had uh, fairly severe postpartum depression and anxiety that I've been pretty open about. Um, I had it with my first daughter as well, except I didn't know that I had it with my first daughter. Um, so I was kind of at that point in five, at the five month point where I didn't know who I was anymore. And I really missed doing the, the nutrition work that I was doing. Um, and so I decided I would start an Instagram page and focus on kid nutrition because it was something that I've always really enjoyed. And um, that's the story. So were you a picky eater growing up and then you decided to work in child psychology just so that you could help other parents deal with your being a picky eater as a child to help them full circle? Um, you know, I have to credit my mom here because uh, I think if I asked her, she would say that I grazed a lot as a child. I've heard her say that a lot about me, that I grazed a lot. And um, that is something that I hear from parents now as well, that kids don't want to sit and eat a meal um, and they just want to eat kind of all day. Um, but I have to credit my mum because um, she did was quite ahead of her time um, without knowing any of this research. She's not educated in this area. Um, but I think... Um, I've been fortunate enough to grow up with a pretty good relationship with food. Um, and I think the reason that I, I, I've always found this area interesting, even like well before I had children, um, I always found it interesting to observe the, the um, dynamics during mealtimes for like family and friends that had children and how there was often a lot of stress and pressure for, for parents and they would often pressure their children to eat certain things. And I always found those dynamics very interesting. And then after I had my first daughter, you know, you, you meet more parents and you spend more time with parents, you eat meals together, you go to birthday parties and stuff. And um, it was very clear to me that there's a, a need to um, help parents understand how they can use the positive power they have in their child's life to make positive changes and to also be much less stressed and anxious at mealtimes because I can see how this runs away with people where you have a child, you know, they eat so well and then around 12 or 18 months they tend to become picky because that's a normal developmental change that occurs in, in babies. They, they assert autonomy over things they can control and ultimately they control what they eat and um, that if they're no longer eating the things that they were eating, that's very stressful for the parent. Oh, they're not eating vegetables or they're only eating carbohydrates. Or, you know, if I've given them a sweet food, they always want a sweet food or they always want these things that I don't want them really to eat. Um, or they refuse to eat certain meals because they want something else. And I can see, especially when they're transitioning from that baby to toddler, that you don't want your child to go hungry and then you can get really stuck in this cycle of, but I want my kid to eat and they really want this thing. So I'm just going to make this thing for them. And then you just get stuck making them separate meals 
or always giving them what they want because you just want them to eat. And that's very stressful. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I mean, tapping into the idea of what you said, where your catalyst was seeing the dynamics of families eat or family situations with young children. One of our audience's most requested episodes was to have a dietitian or nutritionist come on to talk about how this entire process can work for children or if you have picky eaters. So for anyone who may be unfamiliar with the differences between a dietitian and a nutritionist, can you please just give the audience a little background on what the credential difference is between the two? There's no protected term for the word nutritionist. Anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Not everyone can call themselves a dietitian. That's the biggest difference. So education, which really <laughs> underscores everything. Um, so anyone can call themselves a nutritionist, even someone who's taken an eight week course in nutrition can call themselves a nutritionist. Um, to be a dietitian, you have to be credentialed. I'm credentialed in Australia. And um, every year as part of my recertification, I have to do 30 hours of continuing education in the field, um, which is actually double what American dietitians have to do, which I found out. Um, so it's 30 hours a year and um, I'm recertified every year through the Dietitians Association of Australia. And so education is the, is the major difference. And in terms of um, being a clinician, a dietitian can work in a hospital and provide medical nutrition therapy and a nutritionist cannot. Is dietitian PhD level or is it undergrad or both? Or was there a general like doctorate you have to get for it or? It's not a doctorate. Um, I have a master's degree in clinical nutrition and dietetics in the US you currently can get your RD, your registered dietitian status, uh, um, having just had a bachelor's degree, but they are changing that um, in a couple of years to be that you have to also have a master's degree, which I don't really want to get into the politics of that. It's not something that I agree with. Um, but I will say that I have met a number of people who work in the nutrition field that do have a four-year bachelor's degree and their major was nutrition. The problem is when you hear the word nutritionist, I would caution you to find out what specific credential they have. If they have a four-year bachelor's degree with a, a specialization in nutrition, that's very different than someone who took an online eight-week course or a, like a one-week certificate. It's really different. So the di a dietitian is the gold standard because you have that accreditation um, and the name is protected. Now, rewinding a little bit, you had mentioned that many parents may come across a scenario where they have a child, their child has been introduced to certain foods when they're a little baby, maybe, you know, four or five, six months old. And then around a year, parents may see some sort of rebellion take place. So I'd be curious from your point of view, what timeframes are appropriate to begin introducing food, even if it's just for play. And I'd love for you to talk about baby led weaning as well and what that means. Okay, I would love to. So the first thing with the, the guidelines for introducing solids is that in the US, there is the, the, the range between four and six months. And generally speaking, the WHO, the World Health Organization, does recommend six months. Um, and there's some signs of readiness the, for 
baby to be showing before you introduce solids. And the main one is that they can sit independently. So they're not falling over and you're not propping them up. Um, and for, for most babies, I'm just talking general healthy babies. Um, you want to wait till about six months. Some babies show the signs of readiness earlier than others. So, you know, maybe five and a half months, but generally speaking, you know, showing interest to food, bringing toys and things to their mouth is another sign of readiness. Um, but the really major one is um, being able to sit up unassisted and, you know, followed by showing interest in food, bringing things to their mouth. You know, if, you, if, you're, if they're sitting with you while you're eating, they're going to be showing interest in what you're doing. So really, I, I recommend waiting till closer to six months until you until those signs of readiness are present. Um, and there's no you can definitely give them like implements like a spoon to start playing with and getting familiar with. They can hold it, you know, that you can get all these fancy ones that are, you know, have all the grips and the chewing things. And those are all really good. But there's no reason to rush it because most babies who are who are healthy will show the signs of readiness by about six months. And even when they show the signs of readiness, um, anyone who's listening that has a baby, I'm sure can attest to this, that the first time you put them in their chair, they really don't actually swallow very much, if anything. Um, so one of the other signs of readiness is that they have um, a reflex in their tongue called the extrusion reflex or the thrust reflex where they, they thrust their mouth, their tongue out, it's a tongue thrust. Um, and that's to protect their airway. And that disappears somewhere between four and six months. And that's, that's to protect them. And if you give them food before they're ready, they'll just spit it out of their mouth for that reason. And that can cause more anxiety for parents. Oh my gosh, they're not eating it. And this is what's going on and what's wrong with my baby. Um, so that waiting for the signs of readiness, if you're close to six months, don't be anxious about rushing it. There's, there's plenty of time and you'll start when the signs are ready and your baby will learn. And that's around the idea of baby-led weaning, is that you're looking at baby's cues mm -hmm. to determine when to introduce something versus trying to force them into a process. The main, um, so the puree is the traditional method, the spoon feeding, and you can still do that, quote, intuitively, where you're take following baby's lead, where baby is leaning forward and opening their mouth. Um, which is a sign that they want to receive what's on the spoon versus turning their head away or pushing the spoon away, which is, you know, it stands to reason if someone's bringing something towards you and you don't want it, that's kind of what you would do. Um, where um, baby led weaning is the thought that you can skip over purees and the lumpy textures and all that and just go straight to finger foods where babies can pick things up and start exploring the foods as they are. As long as they cut properly and um, appropriate texture. So usually in, you want to give things about the size of your, your middle and uh, forefinger put together um, in length so that because babies in the beginning have what's called the palmer grasp and they can't do their pincer grip yet. So they can't pick up tiny pieces of food and that can be very frustrating. So if you give them something big, I just have a pen here, but they can hold it and you want to have enough space that they can still have some food at the end once they've got it in their little grip um, to put in their mouth to eat. And there's no right or wrong way to do this. You, you know, I know some parents that have anxiety over, you know, choking and whatnot. If, if baby led weeding isn't, isn't sounding like something that you can do, you don't have to do it. And you can also do a hybrid method. I mean, my babies both did baby led weaning, but we still gave them pureed things. I mean, yogurt is a puree. 
Um, so there are things that you can still do. You can also preload the spoon and give it to them. They are quite adept at holding and putting things into their mouth. So, you know, don't feel like it has to be one or the other because it doesn't. And as long as you're following your baby's cues, that's, that's really the most important thing. What are your thoughts on mealtimes where the family eats all of the same food or the parents eat one thing and the child eats something different? I have, I have my opinion and then I have what's, what's realistic in real life. Um, and that's obviously, you know, when you're working with parents, you've got to think about what's realistic. The ideal is that everybody eats the same thing. Um, because you want to model that you're also eating the broccoli that you're giving your child and you're enjoying it and you're eating it too. Um, meals can be the same meal, but still look different. For example, um, my first baby couldn't eat a taco till she was, I don't even know how old, but probably closer to two. So if, if my husband and I had tacos, it would look like a taco. Hers would look like, you know, it would be a tortilla cut into strips with, you know, the spread over it and, you know, the meat or whatever was inside it would just kind of be separate on the plate. So we were still eating the same thing. It just looked different. That's totally fine as well. Um, and if you're eating something that isn't texturally appropriate for your child, um, or let's say you have a baby who's eight months old and you've gotten yourself fast food, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But I would, I personally wouldn't recommend you give the baby fast food um, just because it, it's salty and, you know, babies have, they don't want to, we don't want them to be eating too much sodium. Um, so in, in that situation, that would be okay. But as I would try to aim for majority of the time that you are eating the same thing. And if you're not, if you're eating like leftovers or something, know that you can't be perfect all the time. Like if you have leftovers and it's only enough for you and your spouse and you've given your baby something else or your older child, even if they're two, you know, even with my four-year-old, sometimes all of us have a different meal and it's all just various leftovers and everybody knows what it is. And you know, one of the things that you can do is offer your kid, do you want a bite of mine? Obviously, you, you've got to say, like, the rest of it is for me. You've got to set a boundary. But, you know, so that there's no kind of, oh, you can't have this. This is mine. Um, but if you can do it that way, I think, the, think of it as the majority on the macro scale, what's happening versus just this one meal wasn't the same and I'm just terrible. And, you know, if, if it's happening not that often, don't worry too much about it. I could see a lot of parents, like if you have multiple children that are picky eaters, I could see parents falling into a scenario where they just feel exhausted about it and they sort of throw their hands up and they're like, okay, we're having sushi, but our children- Chicken fingers and french fries. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I can understand. I mean, we've put- collectively the two of us have put a lot of work into consistently providing the same foods that we're eating and in one of the previous episodes that we just shared we talked about our vegetable victory where we've been introducing our son to broccoli for the last year and a half he's two and he for the first time even though we introduce it consistently and put it on his plate we don't force him to eat it he, for the first time, has started eating it, like, on his own. And we're just, like, no. 
like overjoyed to see it. Like we didn't even want to say anything. We're just staring at each other like... Yeah. Like, did you just see that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we didn't even want to jinx it. And it's happened yeah. a couple times since. And you it ate happened a bell with... pepper the other day. I couldn't believe it. Just straight <laughs> up. And I was like, who is this kid? I thought it was a different kid. It was amazing. Yeah, so it's like that persistence has paid off. But I mean, if you had twins or triplets and maybe all three of them were just, you know, yeah. going crazy and not eating and really picky, I could see how parents could fall into a process of just saying like, I'm just making the food that they want and that they'll eat and sort of feeling defeated in that sense. Well, I want to, I want to touch on a couple of things. I want to congratulate you guys on the broccoli and the bell pepper win. Cause that you are doing a little happy dance in your head. Like even I do a happy dance in my head. If my, one of my kids on a, you know, a food jag where they haven't wanted to eat something and then they like eat it. My little one is quite picky with eggs. Sometimes she eat it and sometimes she doesn't. The other day she ate some, she didn't eat the whole thing, but she ate some of it. And I was just like, she just ate some egg <laughs> in my head. I'm just thinking this. Um, so like what you said, continuing to expose them is essential. And this is where a lot of parents get very downtrodden and feels defeated. Oh, I put the broccoli on, they didn't eat it again. And it's like the 700th time. And why don't I just stop doing that? Um, because if you never put it on their plate, they never have the opportunity to eat it. Um, so by continuing to expose them, I want you, if you're, if you're listening and you're one of the people, one of the parents that is feeling this defeated, um, every time you put the broccoli or whatever the food is that they haven't eaten, every time you put a tiny bit of it on their plate, like give yourself a pat on the back and know that you are doing uh, the right thing, um, quote, the right thing. You're doing something positive. And even if they don't eat it, one day they might touch it or lick it or bite it and spit it out. Like those are all wins. And that's something that I really like to focus on is all the little positive things that a lot of parents just don't even see as positives and that continues that cycle of being defeated and I'll just give them what they want and sure it is definitely the path of least resistance to say you know what my baby doesn't eat eggs I'm just not making her eggs anymore but she's never going to try the egg she's never going to learn to eat it if I never put it on the plate so you know one of my tips is giving them something giving them small starting with small portions so that you're not wasting um, because I actually saw something interesting online recently that was, you know, all this paper of, you know, scribbles and, you know, children learning to write and read and, you know, torn things and that's all waste, but that's the process of learning. So when you can reframe your mindset that, okay, you gave them a small florid of broccoli and they didn't touch it. So either you eat it or you put it away, or if you throw it out because you've served it to them already once before. Okay. But that's learning. It's not waste. So those little reframing of mindset is really helpful so that you don't feel so defeated. Like you're just doing the same thing every day and you're not getting a result because you might not get a result now, but it's, in, it's the long term that matters, not right now. Let's say that your child does have a pretty good relationship with food. And as the parent, you have been able to cultivate that and you've been able to guide them along and they, they're eating decently, they're eating pretty healthy. From the parents that you've worked with or from your expertise in what you've seen, I'd be curious, regardless of what's taking place in the home, 
when do the majority of kids begin to deviate based on what they're exposed to outside of the home when it comes to healthy eating or just uh, maybe not even healthy eating, but the parent being more in control of the food options? That's a good question. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to answer because it's going to vary depending on everybody's situation. If you've got a child that's at daycare or at preschool all the time, um, full time because the parents have to work, um, there's the, they're eating a lot more meals with other people. And so they have much more outside influence than a child who is home most of the time with their parents. Um, and that kind of brings back the importance of having family meals um, and as many family meals a week as you can have. And by family meal, it doesn't have to be both parents, even one parent sitting and eating with the child counts as a family meal. Um, I, I, there's so much research that shows the benefits of that. Um, and so if you have a child that is going to, to preschool and daycare, because that's what has to be done, um, you can't beat yourself up over that. You have to realize that you are still the parent um, and you are still having positive impacts and you have plenty of opportunities to have positive impacts. Um, and again, depending on the preschool, some preschools provide all the food and some don't like my daughter's preschools, I have to send all the food. So I still have the influence over her in that way. Um, if you're, in a situation where your preschool provides the food, if you're not comfortable with the food they're providing, I do encourage you to speak out. Um, I actually have had a lot of parents contact me recently that their preschools or like early, you know, grade one, grade two, the teachers say negative things about certain foods like growing foods and unhealthy foods and labeling of foods. Um, so I do see that as an area that um, there's room for improvement. <laughs> We also were curious if you have any suggestions where maybe there's another caretaker who's not necessarily a parent, but maybe like a grandparent who feels, I want to spoil you while you're with me. And maybe they have a weekend with them or, you know, a few hours with them. And it's always a joke. Like the child comes loaded Pixie up with sugar. Sticks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they come back to you, um, any suggestions for parents that may find that they have a family member who just, oh, they're a kid, they can eat all of that. And maybe the parent's like, no, no, I don't want them eating all of that. I can't imagine any parent can relate to what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> because I can totally relate to what you're saying too. Um, so firstly, if I can just tie these two concepts together from the previous one and this one. So parents have a lot of power. I like to call it positive power because you do. And a lot of that power is in your mindset. And it's something to constantly be um, aware of. Like they're getting all this outside pressure to try other foods. And if they come home, my daughter, I don't even know where she ate Cheetos at a birthday party or something. She's been asking for Cheetos. And it's all about how you perceive that. You can either perceive it and say, no, you can't have that bad. That's bad. And I'm not buying that. Or you can say, yeah, next time we go, I'll have a look and see if I can find them. Maybe you find them, maybe you don't. Maybe you go the next time and you find some. Um, and you have a plan for when you're going to give that. And th that can really, again, that's a nuance that can be very difficult. Once you have them, do you just let your child have free reign or do you let them have it sometimes, but not other times? And one of, I actually have two courses and one of them is specifically about sweets and junk, quote, junk foods. 
um, and how to handle that so that you're not restricting them, but also not letting them just have free reign and have their Cheetos whenever they want to. My daughter's not gonna eat Cheetos for breakfast, lunch and dinner, but how to do that while still fostering a healthy relationship with food. So having that positive mindset and how you perceive things, which leads me into the, the grandparent question, which I can very much relate to. As long as what the grandparent or friend, I, I won't rag totally on grandparents, but <laughs> whomever the person is, um, as long as they're not giving something that is a choking hazard or, you know, could, could cause like an allergic reaction if the child has an allergy to something, as long as it's not dangerous to them, again, in the mindset, even though you might feel like really uncomfortable, trust me, I've been there too. <laughs> I felt uncomfortable too when a large cupcake the size of my daughter's head was served. <laughs> I've been there too. And I've just had to sit there and in my head be like, I'm very uncomfortable, but you, you have to let some things be, even though it's really difficult. Like I'm really, I understand how difficult it is because I have been there too. Um, and I know I'll be there again soon. When Claude is <laughs> no longer a quarantine, <laughs> it'll be again. Um, but again, focusing on the, the macro scheme of things, this is one day, one meal. Um, if, you're, if your child only sees this person you know, infrequently look at it in, in that larger scheme of things. This is a tricky, a tricky sticky point for people. Um, and in the new course that I just released, um, it's called Meal Times Without Meltdowns. Um, I put a bonus module in there specifically about this and how parents can make the decision as to whether or not they need to have a discussion about it with this grandparent or other person in their child's life. Um, and then, you know, for, devise a plan that will work um, without making them crazy. There's going to be some level of discomfort no matter what the situation is because ultimately we can't control everything. Um, but that doesn't make it any less difficult. But having, you know, that mindset, I know it's okay, it's just this one time or it's not very frequent, um, that's the pep talk I give to myself <laughs> when I'm in this situation. Um, I do what I can and then you've got to, you, there's a point where you have to let go. Yeah, because I think about when I was growing up and the foods that my family had, my parents were divorced and the foods I would have at my mom's house versus at my dad's house and both families ate relatively healthy. Mm -hmm. And I think about how that has impacted me so much more than any time I was at daycare or at school, like I wasn't, I wasn't so affected by those other scenarios or when I would see my grandmother and she would have this amazing box of chocolates and I could try one. It's like that didn't create my relationship. It really was what was happening at those shared mealtimes that fostered the relationship with food. And that's where it comes back to, you know, your having in your mind that you are, you, both parents, mom and dad, or both moms or both dads or whomever the, the main caregivers are, have the positive power to, you have the most positive power. You are their idols. They look up to you. And yes, they may have great fun with grandma and grandpa or, you know, aunt and uncle or whatever. And think back, like you just said, I love that you reflected on your own, you know, childhood a lot of the memories that we have as as children growing up is around food and so 
this is actually something that my husband said to me, he's not a dietitian, but um, something that he had said to me that was like, you know, there's so many of these memories that we have as children. He had a very good relationship with his grandparents and they were alive when he was growing up. And he remembers a lot of these things, cooking with grandma, eating chocolate at grandma's house, eating cake at grandma's house. Like you've got to let your child have these experiences because it's, it's so important to them. And the food aspect, like on the grand scheme of things is so small, minuscule, and where you have most of the, you know, impact and, and influence that these little things are blips on the radar but they mean a lot to your child and they will mean a lot to your child with a child or a you know if you have a family and you have multiple children that are picky eaters do you find that those children will eventually grow out of being picky eaters or do parents have to work hard to get them out of being picky eaters that's a very good question. It really, really is. Um, I think no, no matter what, no matter how many children you have, sometimes if you have multiple children, like six, six children or five children, you're making a huge meal and there's no room for catering to each individual child. So every child gets the same thing because mum made a huge pot of stew and that's what's for dinner and you're getting stew. Um, it, I, I have found that more problems tend to crop up when there's less children. Not always, but because there's less to, you know, if you're catering, you're making eggs for one, you're making pasta for the other. It's a little easier than saying, I'm making pasta for this one, eggs for this one, this thing for that one, and that one, you know, when you've got, you know, so many children, it's just impossible. And when you've got one or two, it's much more possible. And so the answer to your question is yes, parents have to work at this because children need our help with this. There are so many things that we can do as parents. Picky eating isn't your fault. It's not that you've done something wrong, but if you have a child with a picky eater, there are things that you can do to improve it, to make it better and give them the opportunity to interact with disliked foods or new foods. Um, some children are more neophobic, you know, have food neophobia, don't want new things or are more wary of new foods than other children. Some of that is genetic. Some of it is, you know, taste is, you know, bitter tasting and some of that is genetic. So it's not that you've done anything to make your child picky. There are things that parents do that can increase picky eating behavior like catering to only wanting to give children the liked food because if you're concerned that your child isn't eating and you just want them to eat something yep you're just going to make them something that you know they're going to eat so it does take work um, but there are strategies that you can employ and that's actually i literally released this course about a week ago um, and it has strategies for picky eating and things that parents can do and they're not even just related to meal times actually, because there are a lot of ways that we can help children have positive interactions with food that are positive for us and them. My big core value here is building a trusting relationship with our child, because that will supersede, that is more important than whether your child eats a bite of broccoli or a carrot. That really doesn't matter. But if your child doesn't trust you, that matters. So building a trusting relationship is at the core of what I teach in my framework because if your child trusts you, they're more likely to do things with you in terms of preparing food or 
some of the other things that parents can do that make a difference. So have again, we have this huge positive influence over our child. And if we use that in the right way with the right tools, we can make great changes and we can see great results. It does take time though, just like everything. Teaching a kid to ride a bike takes time. No one ever sat down and just did something amazing, <laughs> build a house for the first time they tried to build a house or built a thing of blocks the first time they did that or wrote the ABC. Like it just doesn't happen. It does, everything takes practice and time. And I think because we feed our kids so many times a day, it feels like sometimes all the time um, that it, it can just wear us out and drain us. Like I've definitely been at the end of a meal where I'm just like, oh, I'm so glad that's over. Um, but if it's stressful all the time, we can just get into this cycle where we just want it to be over and we want it to just be as easy as possible. But it doesn't have to be that way. If there was one tip that you could leave the audience with that's specific to that area, like building trust or that mutual respect for each other, is there a certain phrase or a certain way that you interact with your child that can help or that the parent can implement that could help that process? Yes. I, I wish I could give you more than just one because I have there are a lot. Um, reframing your mindset. So in the back of your head at every mealtime, think that you have all this positive power because you really do. There's This is research that unfortunately most of the research is for mothers, but fathers that are there, caregivers, whether they're male or female, it really doesn't matter, um, have a lot of influence over a child's eating behavior. So you do have so much influence over your child in a, and you can use this in a positive way. And I hope you do. Um, and so role modeling, eating together, having those family meals is very important. And the other thing I'll say in terms of um, how to treat your child and talk to them at mealtimes, I do have a, a phrase guide that I can send you the link for. It's free. You can download it. Um, it's three respectful phrases to help stop mealtime battles. Um, and really, when you're having a meal um, at your next meal, think about some of the things that you say to your kiddo. And how would you feel if your spouse said those things to you? Because if you have a spouse that is sitting next to you and micromanaging your plate and saying like, hey, Talia, I noticed you haven't eaten those green beans yet. Or Talia, it's, uh, it's been 10 minutes and those green beans are just sitting there. They haven't been touched. Or my husband sitting there eating a green bean and showing me how delicious it is. It is not going to induce me in any way to eat that green bean. Um, so thinking about it from the perspective of how would it feel if someone did it to you? Um, how would it feel if someone made you lick something on your plate that you didn't want to lick? Um, this is just an anecdote. Uh, I did a post recently on Instagram where it was just take one bite. And it got a lot of comments. And one person said, I have a friend who doesn't make their child take a bite. She just makes them lick it. Is that okay? And I just said back to her, I'm like, well, how would you feel if your spouse made you lick something that you didn't want to? Food related. Right. But, I was um, going to say, yeah. that could go many different directions. Like, <laughs> you have We have an explicit fun. rating, so have at it. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to lighten the mood. But really, like, it wouldn't feel good to have someone make you do something that you didn't want to do. And ultimately, you know, your spouse is your equal. We as parents, at, we're not equals with our child. We are the leader. 
And so, you know, imagine if it was your boss telling you you had to lick something that, you know, it wouldn't feel good. It wouldn't, it's not from a place of trust and kindness and respect. Um, so if I can leave you with anything, it would be to really think about what you're saying to your child. And, and often we don't think, we just say. Um, but if that was said back to us, it wouldn't feel good. So in that post, were you recommending that parents do entice their child to take a bite or you don't make that suggestion? I do not. Do not make that suggestion. Really, um, there's research that shows parental pressuring um, and and just take one bite is a pressure um, to to, to eat something um, actually causes the exact opposite of what we want. And I've had parents respond to that post saying, I make my child eat it and then they like it and then they eat it. But I've also had parents reply to that post saying, yeah, I have memories of my father or my mother making me eat something and I would vomit afterwards or I to this day don't want to eat a tomato or, you know, I still can't eat this food or I, you know, they ha- it's very unpleasant. And even if your child eats it, it's unlikely they're going to truly enjoy it because it's come from a place of pressuring them to do it. It really has to come from internally. And it's not to say that you can't, you know, talk about the food like, these, this broccoli is, is delicious, it's crunchy and talking about it in that way, but not with the mentality of getting them to do something. I really hate the thought of getting someone to do anything, like getting your spouse to do it. It's so unpleasant that you're, you know, you have to make them do it. Same as with your child. Like we should be working together on this and not against each other. Um, even though that does take longer yeah, sure, your child might take a bite right now, but the long-term effects of that are much more likely to be detrimental versus, like you said, with your child, your son who just ate the broccoli on his own, I'm sure he's going to have a much more positive relationship with that vegetable because you haven't made him lick it or (laughs) swallow it or bite it and spit it out um, for the last year and a half of you offering it to him. It, It has to come from within. Now you mentioned the three phrases. Mm -hmm. Is there one that you can share with the audience if they're in this similar struggle that's been very powerful and some of your clients have said like, yeah, this is a game changer and it really helps. You don't have to eat it. Mm -hmm. You've put the broccoli on your son's plate for the last year and a half. It always goes on the plate when you make broccoli, but your son does not have to eat it. And my daughter has, oh, I have two daughters. Um, the older one is verbal at this point. Um, and she has screamed bloody murder that she does not want X, Y, or Z on her plate at lunchtime. And I just tell her, you don't have to eat it, but it is still going on the plate. And if she wants somewhere to put it when she gets to her, her table, uh, well, the table, <clears throat> I can give her somewhere to put it, a bowl or a, somewhere else. And she can put it in there, which, by the way, is an exposure because she's touched it. That's great. You don't have to eat it. And let me tell you that 97% of the time, she eats it. And I was going to say, by saying you don't have to eat it, it's almost like a clickbait article where it's like, you don't want to miss this. Like, it's reverse (laughs) psychology on the kid. So that makes total sense to me. But I think I'm actually guilty of trying to sneak little bites of broccoli in our son, our little son, you know, here and there. But... Now I'm definitely going to try the whole reverse psychology approach. <laughs> Being careful with that also in that, because I know I, um, 
I have a family member who will remain nameless that does do a lot of the reverse psychology. Like, no, you won't like chocolate cake. Don't eat the chocolate cake. Or you won't like the broccoli. Definitely don't do that. I, I caution you against drawing too much attention to anything on their plate because okay. by you drawing attention to it, it makes them think, aha, what's wrong with this thing? Oh, uh, okay. So, so I don't want to make like, him as cynical as I am right away. <laughs> we have to wait until he's like 13 or 14 for that. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is, I, I have experience with this from a, a family member who there's a lot of pressure at mealtimes and uh, it's a very uncomfortable situation for me, even though I'm not receiving any of the pressure. Um, but I have always found mealtimes very uh, stressful around that family member. But, you know, you don't have to eat it because they don't have to eat it. They are ultimately in charge of what goes into their mouth. You're ultimately in charge of what goes on their plate. And that's something that I talk about in the framework that I go over in the new course, Mealtimes Without Meltdowns, which is what is everybody's role I call it the mealtime rolls. What is everybody's role in eating and food? Mum and dad, it's your job to, to select the food. That's one of your jobs. And once you've put it on the plate, you're done. It's not like you have no more control. It's your child who decides if they're going to eat it. And that's it. That really, that advice really worked for us. I had a friend who has a son that's around a similar age as our son. And I had asked her, I said, just what are some of the tactics that you've implemented? And she said, really, it's up to me what I offer and it's up to him what he eats. And it was a little bit of a light bulb. Like in my mind, I know that, but I was like, that's, it is really that simple. It really is. It's like, it's up to me what I offer and it's up to him what he eats. I'm not going to force him to eat anything. It's just, here are your options. And if, you know, we sat down and he was like, I don't want any of this. It's like, okay, then... I'll figure out something else for you to eat because you are two years old and... We want you to sleep through the night. Yeah, like <laughs> you, do need, you do need something to eat. Um, now, I know you mentioned a couple different courses that you mm -hmm. offer, that you have available. Where would you say they should begin and how would you recommend them sort of moving through some of those courses depending on what their struggles are? But what's a good starting place? First of all, if you're not even sure, if you've never heard of me before, um, if you download the freebie, there's no commitment whatsoever. Go check out the freebie and see if you like it. If you're if you're stuck in a rut and you've been trying the same thing, nothing is changing. Nothing is going to get better. You're just going to get more stressed and frustrated. Um, and the two courses that I have, the the one that I just re released. Um, Mealtimes Without Meltdowns is specific. It's it's the more base course that I think will have much more impact over more parents um, because it's the basics of, of eating, like who's responsible for what, if you have a picky eater, how to uh, um, minimize picky eating. So if you've got a baby, perfect time to be equipped with all the things not to say and all the things to say. Um, all the things like how to build a plate. Um, that was something that you mentioned before, you know, your child didn't eat anything at dinner and you're worried that they're going to go to bed hungry. Well, in the course, you know, one of the things that I go over is how to build a plate so that you've covered yourself. Should that happen? You know that you've, you've created the plate that they can then decide if they're going to eat or not. And I've been in the situation too with my the 23 month old where sometimes she's just more tired than hungry and she will skip lunch completely. She'll have like one bite literally one bite and that is it and that's her choice like yeah it doesn't make me feel great but that's the choice that she's made 
Um, so I talk about in that one, you know, how to deal with meltdowns um, around foods and, you know, giving in, giving snacks. A lot of, one of the major things that parents struggle with is snacks. Um, so it's a big part of what I do. My Instagram handle is family snack nutritionist. Um, and so in the course, there's like a, an ultimate snack guide. Um, I've introduced what I like to call the mini meal mindset so that you think of snacks as little meals that you give to your children um, because children go nuts for what I like to call crinkly bag snacks. If the bag crinkles, my daughter's ears perk like you wouldn't believe it. I know this is true for other children as well. Um, and so if you can make meals or snacks less exciting um, and really beef them up with nutrient-dense foods, that's the way to go. And I know a lot of parents tell me they just feel like they're serving the same thing over and over again. So I've created this guide as part of the course that you can just stick on your fridge um, so that you don't have to keep thinking all the time. And these are things that you can keep in your pantry and your fridge and freezer all the time. So you're not like, oh, I've got to make this extravagant thing. It's not about that at all. Um, it's about how to repurpose leftovers and how to, how to build the plate that is balanced, including at snack times. Let's say that you're in a household where one parent might have a specific diet, like one parent is vegan, but the other parent is not. Or you're in a household where someone has severe food allergies, like they would go into anaphylactic shock. What are your recommendations for families that are in those scenarios where there's just like fundamental differences, not even food preferences, but like, like fundamental differences in diet among family members. I think the, I believe in being honest with children. Um, and that again goes into the building trust. So if for whatever reason, if you have somebody at home who had, who can breathe uh, peanut butter and have a, an anaphylactic reaction, you need to be honest with your ch child, a baby won't understand, but a, a child, even at 18 months, will understand. They might not understand everything, but they do understand a lot more than what we give them credit for, truly. So by telling them, look, I know you love peanut butter, but we can't have it well. Person, this person is in the house. You know, if they're out of the house, we can, I can make you a sandwich. Be just honest with them. And then when the person is out of the house and you can do it, do it. And, you know, go back to that of, I know, you know, you love it so much. And, you know, we can't have it when this person is here, but we can have it today. And I'm so excited to eat it with you. And, you know, be honest about it. If mom doesn't eat meat um, and the child, some parents want to give the child the option to eat meat, others don't. And just be honest about what it is as to why they're not. And be really careful about um, food fear because labeling foods can cause children to become afraid of them. So that's why I don't like you labeling foods as good and bad, healthy and unhealthy. Um, safe and unsafe, um, poison, sugar is poison, like avoid all those kinds of labels because you, you know what's poisonous? Eating a, a, a mushroom that could actually kill you. That is poisonous. Sugar is not going to kill you. It will not. Um, and I'm happy to take someone to task on that if they would like to disagree. But um, really removing food fear and being honest about it, whether it's an allergy, just be honest. This is what happens if Jason <laughs> eats this food. It can make Jason very sick. And obviously the way you explain it will be different at different ages, but being honest because that builds the trust that we want to have with our kids.
I don't want to generalize in any way, but I have, you know, heard a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of talk online of, you know, that uh, eating meat is murder and that kind of thing, that we're murdering these cows and, you know, anyone who eats meat is a murderer. <laughs> like, that's not the type of thing you want to tell your child. Even if you might believe that, that is a scary concept for a child and it's not appropriate to, to push those beliefs on them. You can tell them, honestly, I, I don't eat meat for if it's a religious reason or if it's an ethical reason, like you can explain that, but do it in a way that's not going to frighten the living bejesus out of your child. Because um, that's, again, that food fear, which we don't want them to have. We don't want our kids growing up to be af afraid of eating certain things. That's the whole premise of a healthy relationship with food is that all foods are equal. If you could leave our audience with one key takeaway, what would be that tidbit for them? I've, I've said it a few times and it's this, it's this one. It's that you have so much power, positive power. And if you can reframe your mindset around eating, you're going to be a much less frustrated parent. And at three to five times a day, feeding your kids. Sometimes if you've got a slow eating child that can eat for an hour, I've had one. There's a lot of stress that you can just let go um, by acknowledging what you can control, what you can't control and employing strategies and tactics that will help you ultimately be less stressed and know that you're doing everything that you can do. Even if your child is picky, there are things that you can do. Throwing your arms up in the air and just saying, I give up, isn't helping you and it's not helping them. It's just going to make you even more frustrated. What is a favorite resource that you would recommend to the audience if they're experiencing this or, um, you know, maybe even something that you've utilized in the past that's helpful? Um, yes, I wrote down a couple of ones for this. Um, in terms of food, so if you have a child, a baby um, who's just learning to eat, or even a, a, a toddler, there's a book called Born to Eat, and it's written by two dietitians, one of whom um, is a colleague of mine. Um, it is an excellent read. They talk about baby led weaning, they'll, they'll explain all the um, textures and sizes and different um, ages and stages for children, baby up to, I think, three years old. Um, they've got recipes in there. They um, also go into the mindful eating approach, um, which is terrific. They, the book is just, I can't say enough good things about it. I've read it and I have loved it. Um, so from the feeding aspect, and it's not, I, I mentioned that it's baby led weaning, but they, there's no shame in the book because they talk about how you can do pureed as well, hybrid method or only pureed and how you can still use the underlying principles in the book, no matter what feeding method you're using. So highly, highly recommend Born to Eat. Um, and uh, another resource that um, I was given a book by Janet Lansbury when my first baby was born. And um, I have both her books, I own both of them, and I listen to her podcast and I read her articles. Um, I have found she talks about respectful parenting and in the more broad sense of talking to children on a day-to-day -day basis and how we treat children, how we talk to them, how we discipline them, um, all of those things. I have found that I am a much less stressed parent um, since reading her books and, and listening to her podcast. So I recommend both her books and her podcast for parenting as a resource. And there was one other book, um, I don't have the author in front of me, but it's called Brave Parenting. 
Um, it's the Buddhist guide to parenting. Um, I, I read that um, when I think my, I don't remember which baby, I think it was after the first one had been born. Um, but in terms of parenting and mindset, it's, it um, also goes into older children. Um, but a lot of the things that they talk about in the book are applicable to younger children as well, just building resilience and managing meltdowns and feelings and all those kinds of things that come up. Um, found that to be a particularly good resource as well. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. we will link those in the show notes as well for the audience so that they can easily find them. And where can everyone find you? Shout yourself out. Okay. Um, on social media, I'm mostly on Instagram. You can find me at family.snack.nutritionist. And the handle does say nutritionist because people search nutrition, um, not dietitian on Instagram, but I am a dietitian. Um, and you can find my website, which is theplumpantry.com. My courses are all there. I have a YouTube channel as well that is family.snack. Actually, there's no dots, just family snack nutritionist. Um, and I, I have a lot of videos about label reading and um, babies that don't want to eat and a lot of the things that we've talked about today with picky eating and, and managing all those kinds of things. Um, intuitive eating. So um, that's a relatively new thing, but you can check me out there as well. And I, what I love about your content is that it's always giving a tactical takeaway that somebody can implement. It's very visual and it's like, here's exactly what you can do. Like do this, don't do this. So you're really to the point. I appreciate that. I know that um, we're really busy. I have two kids and I work, and um, but I also stay home with the kids. So uh, like life is really busy and like both my courses, um, they're between an hour and an hour and a half and the videos are all short. They're face to face with me. Um, so that I, I, I've taught students for over five years. So I think people learn better when they see a face. Um, but the videos are short. I want you to have actionable tips that you can implement at your next meal and feel inspired and empowered and confident because you need to feel confident when you're making these changes. If you're second guessing yourself, like, oh, I don't know if I should put the broccoli on the plate, like your child's going to pick up on that and it's just not going to get the result you want. So being confident when you know you have a plan and you can stick to the plan will help you so, so much. Well, thank you for joining us. It has been a pleasure to have you and for you to share your knowledge. Our audience is going to love this. They've been requesting this almost since day one. So we can't wait to be able to share this and elevate the vibe. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Talia. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Hey there, Vibe Hive babes. If this podcast has brought you any value, please rate and review on your favorite listening platform. And if you're feeling really generous, share with a friend. Visit us at elevatethevibe.co for show notes on this episode and previous episodes. This podcast is intended to educate, entertain, and inspire. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions you may have. And as always, thank you for joining us to Elevate the Vibe.